Good evening. Good to see you guys here. If you have your Bibles, open it to Matthew chapter 10. It's good to be back. It's good to be back in the Gospel of Matthew. As I was going over this study this week, I was again challenged, as always, by the Lord and the things that He says. Uh, find it challenging and invading in so many ways. And what I want to do is actually cover the entire sermon here in Matthew chapter 5. There's a lot of verses here, and we could definitely dissect it, but, you know, this is really one unit of thought, and there's a lot here in this thought. And if we dissect it, I think we can lose the entire kind of scope of what Jesus is getting at. And so I want to try and cover it all here tonight in one session. So let's start at verse 5, and we're going to read all the way through to chapter 11, verse 1, and then we're going to go through it. Now, before we start reading this, uh, imagine, if you can, you're one of the disciples. Kind of put yourself in their shoes Maybe pick a disciple. You can be whatever one you want. Maybe you were, you know, Matthew. You were a tax collector, so you were a little affluent. Maybe you were Peter, a fisherman. Maybe you want to be Simon, the zealot, the rebel. Whichever one fits your character and personality, go ahead and pick that person. And try and put yourself here listening to Jesus. You've been following Jesus. You've seen the things that he's been doing, the miraculous. You've heard the teachings we've gone through, the Sermon on the Mount, and now here is another one of his sermons, and you're hearing it for the first time as you've committed yourself to following him. Imagine how you'd be feeling as he says some of these things. Starting at verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. Okay, are you following me? Are you one of his disciples right now? And he tells you this, okay? I mean, we'd keep reading because we, oh, we know what this says, but just imagine Jesus said this to you. Okay, go out, stay among the Israelites, and here's what I want you to do. Okay, heal the sick, raise the dead. Okay, you're not going to come with us? (laughs) Because that's what I'd be asking. Are, Are you coming, Lord? Okay, sorry, I wasn't supposed to interrupt myself, but here we are. Verse 9. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils, 
and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. Let that sink in a little bit. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers, and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. So do not be afraid of them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my father in heaven. Do not suppose I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother or more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if Anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple. Truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. After Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went out from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, as we look into these, your words Father, may we be challenged, may we see what you are speaking to us and how that should take place and, and change us and work within us. Father, these words are shocking. They are, to say the least, difficult to embrace and understand.
but they are your words and they are meant to be just that. Lord, these words are meant to shake our foundation, meant to challenge us to the core of our being, and may they do just that tonight as we look at them. We ask your help in understanding. I ask for your help in talking about these things, Lord, and we do pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen. What would you be thinking if you were one of the disciples hearing these words? You've left your business if you're Matthew. You know, as rather successful as a tax collector. Maybe you were Peter. You left your family business of fishing. And then Jesus says these things. You've seen people healed. You've seen people raised from the dead. You're impressed beyond measure at this man, Jesus. And then he comes here and he tells you that you're going to be flogged. You're going to be arrested. That brother will betray brother to death. You'll be hated by everyone. What are you going to think? I think ultimately what you're going to be thinking after this sermon is, what will you give your life for? Because I think that's really what Jesus is asking us here. What are you going to give your life for? And when we think of give our life for, we think, well, I'm going to die. But really he's saying, what are you going to live for ultimately until you die, whenever that might be? And are you willing to live for something that you would be willing to die for? They had to be thinking as they hear this, this doesn't end well. Or maybe it ends well, but the middle sure stinks, you know? It's what's going to happen? How is this going to take place? What? And my thoughts hearing this is, where's meek and mild Jesus? You know, the the one we were reading about who says, blessed are the poor. Where's that guy? Where's the one who, who said, I'm more important than the sparrows and better than Solomon and his, you know, all the flowers. And where's that guy? This guy, he's ruling. He's divisive. He has authority and he's demanding. And no doubt it's the same guy. But he's getting serious and he's doing it for a purpose. In verse five, when he starts off, he says, don't go among the Gentiles or enter into the town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven is near Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely have received, freely give. Jesus is extending his mission. This is the commission that he gives ultimately at the end of this gospel as well. But here he's giving this mission to the disciples and it is directed specifically to a certain people, particular people, the Israelites. It's a particular people at a particular time in a particular place. And it's always that way. God is always commissioning us to a particular people, particular time, a particular place. And it's important that we understand that because they were specifically sent out to preach this message that the kingdom of heaven is near, the the gospel, the good news. And as we've talked about throughout this book, Remember, the gospel didn't begin with Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead. The gospel began with the promise of a Messiah. That's the gospel. God promised a Messiah and he delivered. 
And so the gospel is beginning with who Jesus is, the Christ, the anointed one, the one that was promised, the one that was talked about. And it was to a specific people. Why? Because that's who God had promised to, to the Jewish people. I am promising you a Messiah will come, and now he's fulfilling that promise. And so Jesus is directing it to these specific people. With us, it's different. We're not specifically dealing with the Jewish people. We're dealing with our culture, our people, our time, our place. And he's commissioning us just like he commissioned them. And, and so what I wanted to look in just the small section is, what does this mission look like for us at Genesis? And I believe there's three things that he talks about here. One is to proclaim the message. The kingdom of heaven is near. What is he saying? He's saying the kingdom of heaven is attainable. It's within your reach. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. It is there to be grasped because it is being given to us in the promise of God, the person of Jesus Christ. And so what we are to proclaim is that the kingdom of heaven is near. It is able to be taken hold of by you. Well, what do I have to do to obtain it? You just need to receive it how it is given in the person of Jesus. Well, do I need to pray and do I need to read or do I need to go to church a certain amount of time? Do I, I imagine I need to meditate on God or something? No, it's attainable. It's near. It's within your grasp. All you need to do is receive it. It is found in Jesus. This is making disciples, bringing them to the place where they learn who Jesus is learn who God is through Jesus, and bring him to that place. And, and so that is one of the things that we're on mission to do, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's within your grasp. The next one's a little bit more difficult because he tells them to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy. We pray for the sick. We pray for healing. I haven't prayed for anyone to rise from the dead. I just, I'm scared. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what would happen if they did. I, I'd be even, oh. <laughs> you know, I, I just, and I know it's a lack of faith on me. Um, but I believe, you know, what Jesus told the disciples to do here, we don't have any account of them actually doing it at this time. We know that Peter actually raised Dorcas uh, in Acts chapter 9 from the dead. So we know that God did use them to do the miraculous, but we don't see that happening a lot. But what I do see happening is the need to care for the needs of others. Those who are sick, we are to care for them. Those who are in need, we are to socially be responsible. And so it's not a matter of just preaching good news to them that the kingdom of heaven is near, that Jesus is within their grasp, but is also helping them where they have need. That's why we went to Haiti. That's why we go to Mexico. That's why we're working with the Foothill Family Shelter. That's why we are involved with social things because it's not just 
do this one thing, it's also to be of help in this other area. You ladies, as you're going through James, you know that that's going to be a big subject. Faith without works is dead faith. What good is it if you see your brother in need and you shut up your compassion and you show them your faith by saying you believe? No, you have to act on it. And so Jesus is commissioning them not only to proclaim a message, but he's also asking them to help them in their need. And so that's another thing that we want to do. We want to help people in their need, the social needs. We want to pray for them where we can. We want to be involved with their lives tangibly. Because it is not enough just to tell them they need Jesus. Is it important? Yeah. It is not enough. It is also not enough just to go and help them. Help them to get better, to give them, you know, financial aid. That's not enough. It comes with the message. It comes with the help, the healing. They're to work together. And then he closes and he says, to shake the dust off your feet if they don't receive that. You see, what he's doing is saying, leave that be. In other words, we're not the ones who bring judgment. We just bring the message. He says it'll be better than for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that city on the day of judgment. They don't judge it. God will judge it. I find so many times that we want to bring the judgment. Oh, yeah? Don't like what I have to say? You're going to hell. We like to go there. Come on, admit it. When, when you get upset, you, you, you want, you get upset. You, you, you want to say things. You want to vin be, you want to vindicate yourself. And so many times we get into a place where we argue, but we're not supposed to argue. We're, we're not supposed to bring judgment. In fact, he says that freely you have received, freely give. That means there's humility. We offer a salvation that we ourselves are clinging to. We aren't coming in as if we've got this all together. This is our own thing that we've put together. We've received it freely. We're giving it freely. And having that humility is a really important thing because we don't want to be someone who's overbearing as if this is our gig. I have a real hard time receiving anything from someone who's arrogant. Don't you? You know what it's like? I mean, even when you watch TV, if you're watching, you know, a certain, like, American Idol or something like that, and there's one of the singers, and like, oh, this guy's got an attitude. Oh, yeah, he's got an amazing voice, but, man, I don't like him because he's got an attitude, right? I'm going to vote for the country boy because he's a nice guy. <laughs> I don't like the way he sings, but he's a nice guy. And so all the junior high girls vote for the country boy. I'm not bitter. That's just the way it is. Um, and so what happens is when you become arrogant in something, you're actually becoming a hindrance 
freely you've received, freely give. Humility is supposed to be the character that we bring this in. And so the three things that we want to be about is proclaiming the message, helping those who are in need, and doing it in humility. I, I want that to be the characteristics of us here at Genesis. That's how we do this. We bring the message, we help the people, and we do it in humility. Verse 9 goes on, Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you on your belts. No bag for your journey or extra shirt or sandals or staff, for the worker's worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at the house until you leave. If you enter a home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not receive you or come to you, listen to you, the words leave you that home. Then it goes on and he says, shake the dust from your feet. It'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that house. You know, when he says not to take gold or silver, he's not to be overburdened with the material things. He's speaking specifically to the people here at this time, his disciples, that they weren't to be taking a lot with them. In their culture, if they went to the house and they said, hey, I have need, can you put me up for the day? They were supposed to take them in. It was part of their culture. It's not part of ours. Okay, if you come to my house, knock on my door, hey, can I stay? Nope, and shut the door, okay? <laughs> it's not part of our culture. And so it was part of their culture. And so they weren't supposed to be overburdened with things. They weren't supposed to carry two sandals. They weren't supposed to carry a bunch of money. And really he's talking about not being overburdened with material things. And I think that's something that is practical for us too. That if we are going to be doing the work of God, we can overburden ourselves with the things that we have. The more things you have hold of, the more things have hold of you. And it becomes that way. That's just how it is. And it doesn't matter who we are. The more things we have hold of, the more those things have hold of us. And that's why it's hard sometimes to, to break away and go somewhere. Oh, I want to go you know, to Haiti and I want to try and live there for a few months. Oh, but I got to pay rent on my house. And what about my car? Oh, yeah, I've got kids. You know, I mean, those kinds of things. You, you have responsibilities. The more things that are part of your life those things have hold of your life. And so I believe Jesus is trying to get us to be aware of those things that have hold of us. And he says, if they welcome you, we are not here to start arguments. If they welcome you, great. If they don't, great. You don't see him saying, if they don't welcome you, then force them to welcome you. No, instead he says, leave. And then he tells them about shaking the dust. Again, we're not the ones who bring the judgment. God's the one who brings the judgment. We just bring the message. I don't know why it is. It's a competitive thing that we have, wanting to be right. And I've done this to my embarrassment so many times where I'm in a dialogue with someone and they don't believe in Jesus. And to me, they should. My mindset, you should believe it's the most sensible thing you should do, but they don't. And so I want to convince them that I'm right and that they're wrong. And so I'll start dialoguing with them. And they say, well, I don't believe that. 
And I said, well, why don't you believe it? Well, because I don't think this is right. Look, give me an answer. Evolution, uh, what, if God is good, why is there evil? Whatever it is. They come, and so I'm going to argue that point. Well, no, here's what it is. Well, no, I don't, still don't believe. And I'm going to find another point. What other point? Come on. I've got to win this argument. And you see, it's no longer about the person. It's about the argument. And so many times we as believers and followers of Jesus Christ want to win the argument, but it's at the cost of trying to win the person. Debating. I've watched a lot of debates, Christians against scientists and these things, and ultimately you've got the people who are already on one side are supported by that one side. You know, you'll you'll be at a debate and they'll say, oh, this guy proved his point and everyone who believes that point, yay, they're cheering. This guy held his point and everyone on this point says, yay. And to win a debate, you either have to come across as mean so that you win or you come across as stupid and you lose. But really, neither one wins. If you come across as mean, you're not winning a debate. That wasn't the point. And so much of our apologetics is really for us. And it's good stuff. It's good to know what you believe. It's good to have a grasp of why you believe. It's good to know about the New Testament documents and their reliability. And there's a lot of good information out there. But be careful. When you start using apologetics to win arguments, think about Jesus' words here. If they don't want to receive it, don't cast your pearl before the swine. Don't try and force an argument. Remember, Jesus spoke to the people in parables. Why? Because he wanted them to pursue him. He wanted them to be curious and continue. He didn't just come and tell people, this is how it is. Here's all the answers. He challenged the people and those who were interested followed. Those who were curious asked the questions, sought after him and found him. The same thing's true with us today. People are searching. They're searching through different ways. We need to be aware of those who are searching and not try and answer things that people aren't asking, force conversations that aren't relevant and become abrasive and become arrogant. I remember one time we had this one guy who came to our Bible study and he was, you know, the poor soul who someone invited, the only non-Christian who was there and everyone knew it because he was there with some girl that brought him. And, you know, he was just there because the girl, but, you know, he got suckered into this Bible study. And so now there's 14 people around him trying to convince him that he should be a Christian. And the poor guy was just shell-shocked. He's just like, okay, okay. And I remember I was one of the guys blasting him. I was there giving him all the reasons why he should be a Christian. And I was telling him, you know, you got this and your life will be like this and your life will be like this. And I remember so vividly him saying, well, good for you. And I remember thinking, this isn't going like I expected. <laughs> that, that wasn't the 
response I was trying to go for. And it was obvious to me that I was having a conversation with myself and not with him. And so many times we try and force a conversation and really we're just having a conversation with ourselves. We're making ourselves feel better because I'm giving you all the facts that I know about all the things I know about, but it's not engaging that person where they're at. Jesus did not force himself on anyone. And he tells them here, you don't need to do that. If they don't want to hear it, move on. Judgment will fall on them and God will do the judging, not you. Then he goes on and he gives them some warning. In verse 16, he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Yay, that's a picture. And he tells them that they're to be shrewd as serpents, but innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what you say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. He goes on and he tells them that brother will betray brother. He tells them that the student is not above the teacher, the servant's not above the master that they are going to have to go through and deal with these things. He is warning them of the persecution that is going to come. And he did this on purpose. Imagine if he didn't. They've been following Jesus. Jesus is raising people from the dead. He's healing people. He's doing miraculous things. Go out. God is with us. All right, no one can take us. We, we got the winning team. And then they get arrested. God, where are you? Help me. I thought you loved me. Things that we do sometimes, right? I mean, Jesus is telling them and he's telling us it's going to get difficult. In fact, it's going to get hard and it's going to be painful. It's going to be painful physically, you're going to be flogged, beaten. It's going to be painful emotionally, your brothers are going to betray brothers. But if they called me Beelzebub and mine your teacher, they're going to do the same thing for you. They're going to reject you. And, you know, this happens to others in other countries, maybe Iran, Sudan, different places where there is serious persecution where people's bodies are physically being beaten and hurt for their faith, where people's livelihoods are in danger and jeopardy, their families are destroyed because they believe in Jesus. To us, this, this is something that we can only think about, but we don't really experience the persecution that he's talking about here. But he's warning them, he's letting them know and us that even though there is opposition that's going to come, Jesus is saying, I've got it handled. It's going to happen, but he's letting them know what's ahead, and he's letting them know that it's okay. I'm expecting that. When you're expecting something, you can prepare for it. You can pre prepare for it mentally. Prepare for it emotionally. 
If someone you love is sick, has cancer, and you know that they're going to die, you still grieve and hurt, but you start preparing emotionally for that. You start thinking about life, what it'll be without them, the things that you're going to need to do. You start making that preparation in your life because you know it's happening. When it happens, it hurts, but the brunt of it has now been absorbed by the preparation. When it's something you don't know and it hits you, it's catastrophic. It catches you off guard. It takes your breath away. It knocks you out. And Jesus isn't wanting them to be knocked out. This is coming, guys. Prepare for it. And what's good about this is that God is looking out for us in the preparation of what's going to happen. What's bad about it is it's going to happen. But now he's given us that understanding, the warning, this is what's going to happen. And then he identifies us with himself. The teacher's not or the student's not above his teacher. He's trying to be like his teacher. Well, what happened to the teacher? He was persecuted. He was crucified. So what do you expect? If you're going to be like the teacher, this is what they did to him. We're now identifying with Jesus and what he is, what he's done. And that's important because that's where he's going to in the culmination of this sermon that he spoke of. In verse 26, he goes on and he tells them after this, after he's saying, this is going to get ugly, guys. It's going to be brutal. Verse 26, he says, so do not be afraid of them. They're going to beat you, but don't be afraid of them. Think about that. Because he's purposefully bringing this place to them. Don't be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then he goes on, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my father in heaven. Jesus is going on and he's pushing us to a place where he's telling us, what we are to fear and what we are not to be afraid of. He's telling us we're not to be afraid of those who can hurt us. In fact, think about who it is you really do fear. You see, if you fear God, then you don't need to fear anything or anyone else. Why? Because he knows more than we do. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He has more information. And so if we care just about what he is concerned about, we don't need to care about what others are concerned about. We can trust him. He's going to catch us. When I was a kid, about five years old, I think I've told this story before, I was showing off to the girl next door and 
I was climbing on a tree and I was going hand over hand on this limb of the tree. And I got out pretty far and I couldn't get back. And so I was dangling on this tree because I thought that would be impressive. Wouldn't you be impressed? <laughs> and when I realized I, I couldn't get back, I started screaming like a girl, which wasn't my objective originally. And so I was at my cousin's house doing this, and so my uncle came running outside because he heard this blood-curdling scream and sees his nephew dangling on this branch above the ground. And I don't know how high it was, probably like 200, 300 feet, something like that. <laughs> and I was there, and so my uncle gets underneath me, and he says, it's okay, let go. And I was like, no, I can't let go. He goes, I'll catch you, let go. And so I did. I let go. And he almost caught me. <laughs> Except for the clothesline that was between he and I that my leg hooked on and spun me around and I hit the ground. God's not like that. <laughs> God will catch you. I'm trying to make the point in a different way. You can let go. And he knows about the clothesline in between. In fact, he knows the number of hair on your head. And he cares for you. You're of more valuable. You're more value than the sparrows. And not one of them falls to the ground without his concern. And so if we fear God, we don't need to fear anything else. We're to have such confidence in him that in spite of this persecution that's taking place, knowing that these things are here, what he speaks to us in the dark, we're supposed to talk about it in the midday. These things that are going to cause persecution that he's telling us in that closet, we're supposed to go in the open and proclaim it. Those things that he's just whispering in our ear that is going to cause the difficulty that he's telling us is going to come. He says, get on the rooftop and proclaim it. We're supposed to have such confidence in him that in spite of this persecution that we will face, we are to still be bold and have faith in him in spite of the difficulty. That's the faith that we are supposed to have in him to trust him we will have nothing to fear if we put jesus in the right place you have nothing to fear unless you fear the opinion of others fear will make our voice silent it will keep us from speaking it will stop our witness but if we have the confidence in God, then we won't be silent. What he whispers to us, we'll be able to proclaim. We'll have the boldness to make those things known. Why? Because he knows. He knows what's best. He's got all the information. We can trust him. And so he tells us that we're to have these priorities. In verse 32, whoever acknowledges me before others... I will acknowledge them before my Father in heaven, but whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, 
but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves father, mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Oh my gosh. What happened to the joy to the world Jesus that we just celebrated at December? The peace on earth, Jesus. Now he's, he's challenging us. And what he's asking us, is there someone or something that is more important than me? And, you know, we, we kind of crave that meek and mild Jesus, that one who is there for us, and he's going to run and give us a bear hug. You know, we want that Jesus who's there that we can just put our our head in his shoulder and he's going to embrace us. Not the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire, whose, sung, whose tongue is a sword, who's got a tattoo on his leg and his white robe is dipped in blood. That's not the Jesus we're looking for. But it's the same person. And, and you see, what he's telling us here is that he is able to accomplish what is necessary and we need to get on the right team. We need to make things right because he is going to make things right. He is going to judge. He is going to be the one who controls. And if we don't have him in the right place, then we are not in the right place. And it's almost like, well, you can be on my team, which is going to win, or you can choose another team. I want to be on Jesus' team. Well, then this is the priorities if you're going to be on my team. Because you have to admit that he's God and you're not. You have to admit that he's in charge of all life. And if he's in charge of all life, then you need to put him in charge of your life. Because if he's not in charge of your life, then you are not alive. That's how it is. And so it doesn't matter what else is going on. If he is not in charge, then who is? And you see, everywhere where you have a good thing, like a father, a mother, a son, a daughter. Those are all good things. But if you take a good thing and you make it the ultimate thing, then what you have is an idol. And Jesus doesn't play second fiddle to our idols. And he lists the things that in most cases are the most important things to us, our family. Those things that we value the most. They're good things. If it becomes the ultimate thing, then that's what your life is on mission for. Because an idol is something that your life is on mission for. What, what, what is it that you crave most? Do you want the American dream? I want a house, white picket fence, 2.5 children, a beamer in the driveway. This is what I want. This is my life. This is what I'm on mission for. It's what I'm pursuing. It's what I'm going for. 
What do you want the most? I want to be American Idol. You know, whatever it is, you're going to give your life for that thing. You're going to pursue that. Is that the most, is that the ultimate thing? Because that's what you're on mission for. And Jesus is not going to play second fiddle to your idols. He will not do it. And what he's saying is that everywhere you have an idol, you will be on mission for that idol. And he's not going to submit to our idols. We need the gospel as much as we need to offer it. This is for us as much as it is for those. There is nothing more ultimate than Jesus. And that's the point he's making here. There is nothing more important than me. Why, I am life. Turn with me to 1 John real quick. I think I'm going to make through. 1 John, the first chapter. John, when he's giving a description of who Jesus is, we'll start at verse 2. This is how he describes Jesus. Notice what's absent here. Jesus' name. Starting at verse 2, 1 John 1, he says, The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. He is the life. He is the eternal life. You can't detach yourself from life and still be alive. And no matter what else you put in your priority, if it is not the life, then it is going to cost you more than you can imagine. And Jesus is trying to bring that to bear. Even good things can become bad things if they're in the wrong place. And we need to understand that. Can you imagine how drastically these things have changed for the disciples? All of a sudden, hearing this message, being told these things, and this is what I want you to embrace here, is that even though they were told these things, they didn't leave. They stuck it out. What would you do? You're going to be beaten. Everyone's going to hate you because of me. Yay. But they stayed. Why? Because their life had changed. Whatever it was that they were a part of, whatever the life they had, the people who were involved, the things that they did, in comparison to what they had in Jesus, there was no comparison. And they were willing to let it go because what they had was so much more. And you see, that's why the psalmist can say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Your love, O Lord, is better than life. This experience of who God is, recognizing who Jesus is, it is better than everything else. Even the things that are most precious to us. My children, my wife, my family, 
This is so much more. It doesn't take away love for my wife or children. It's just in a different place. It overshadows everything. And it's supposed to be that way. There is an ultimate freedom not to fear. There's an ultimate security in the one who knows all things and is ultimate in every way. There's a sense of security. Why? He knows everything. There's an ultimate sense of wonder when you're living for God. The one who can do anything, who does the amazing, who brings life to us who were dead. It changes everything. And he's bringing us to this realization. Back to the question, what will you give your life for? Or give your life to? There's a lot of things we can nobly give our lives for. For a country, for family. People do that all the time. It's not wrong. But ultimately, what are you living for? What are you going to give your life to? And Jesus is saying, it needs to be me. It needs to be me. And he closes on, and he says in verse 40, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. What he's doing here is handing the mantle of his role as prophet, the one who proclaims to the disciples. It's much like what Elijah did to Elijah back in 1 Kings 19 when he was going to follow him. He laid his cloak on him and he said, follow me because now you're going to do what I did. This is exactly what Jesus is doing to them and is what he's doing to us. He's telling us, if you do what I do, you'll receive the reward I receive. And if someone is kind to you, they're being kind to me. If they do something for you, it's as if they're doing it for me. Why? Because I am giving you this commission. I am putting you into this role. This is now supposed to be your identity, how you continue to live your life. And so what Jesus is doing here is putting them under his mantle as the one who proclaims, brings this message. And he's doing that with us as well. Which is, again, is good news. See, it ends on good news. It was just rough getting there. But the question should be, what are we going to give our life for or what are we going to give our lives to? It's easy to not think about Jesus in that realm. I think we do it a lot. But Jesus is challenging us to think of him as who he is. And in that way. Are there any questions regarding this passage that we've talked about? Verse 23, I might as well bring it up since I did. Um, 
I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Um, there's a lot of people have written a lot of things on that. The best thing that I've read that answers it for me is what Jesus was speaking about was when he actually, Son of Man, comes from the dead. Um, the reason I kind of brought it up is because I've heard entire sermons preached about the end times on this passage, and I think this passage has nothing to do with the end times, and it makes me crazy that someone would take that verse and make it about the end times and miss, really, the whole... That's why I wanted to talk about the whole sermon, because that one little verse isn't the whole sermon, and I believe it was talking about that when he rose again from the dead, that this was already going to take place to all those towns that were there. So there, I brought up a question and answered it. <laughs> well, let's pray and we'll close. Father, we do, again, stand in awe of you and our challenge. At least God, I am. I, I am constantly brought to a place where I have to ask myself, what am I willing to give my life for? And I have to ask myself, where are you in my priorities? Lord, I know that there are so many more areas where I can relinquish control, where I can surrender to you, where I need to hear from you, where I lack faith in you, where I don't trust you like I should, where I am afraid, where I am still controlled by those fears and insecurities where I haven't let you truly own. And your words speak to the depths of my soul, Lord. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of those who can destroy the body but can't touch my soul. But I am to have the fear for you because you care perfectly for me. Because you know ultimately everything that is necessary for me. The more I confide in you, the better life will be. Not the easier, but the better. Because I am connecting to life itself when I connect to you. Thank you, Lord, for this time. I pray these words would stay in our hearts and stay in our minds throughout this week. May we meditate on them. May we think and be challenged by them, Lord, even as you meant for them to challenge us. For we do ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.